Well, last month, the Squamish Nation uh, began uh, the process of creating their own education system. When I say began the process, well, they held a, a vote, a referendum in their community. 87% of voters greenlit the proposal to begin a new education system. Now, to begin, you still have to negotiate with the federal and provincial government, and much work is needed moving forward. But it was a critical first step. Now, historically, Canada's colonial leaders sought to eradicate Indigenous identities, languages, and cultures across the country and with the church as well. So now uh, the Squamish nation is beginning the slow step of claiming their education, reclaiming uh, their education system. It's just one of many changes and projects the Squamish First Nation are focusing on. It's from education to public safety to housing development. Joining me now to discuss the changes is Squamish Nation Council Chair, Hal Salem. Thank you for speaking to us today, Hal Salem. Thank you. Well, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, let's begin the conversation on a story that uh, came out just a few weeks ago, specifically in regards to the education system and the Squamish Nation's desire, desire to reclaim education. Um, walk me through what you would like to see as a member, as a leader, in regards to uh, the education system on, for your people. The uh, vote we had in our community in December uh, gave us the overwhelming support and mandate to move forward with negotiating uh, educational jurisdiction with the federal and provincial government. And really what I think is going to be possible as we engage and take direction from the community is we'll be able to design our own education system. So just like you have a school board that oversees a number of schools uh, where they can set criteria around different types of courses that might be available at that school, we'll be able to do the same thing. Um, But it also means more than that. In the same way that the province can certify who can teach what courses, uh, we'll also be able to create our own certification system so that if teachers want to work in our school system, we'd actually have to go through our our own accreditation in order to be able to teach certain courses. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that allows for us to design really unique curriculums, really unique teaching methodologies that are perhaps aligned with our traditional values and our traditional ways of teaching. We could incorporate Indigenous knowledge into the courses. And there's a lot of examples around the world in the United States and in Hawaii and New Zealand where, you know, you take something like science. And uh, there's uh, Indigenous-run schools in Hawaii where they go out in their canoes in the early morning out into the coral reefs and teach earth sciences to their students, but they do it through traditional canoeing and being out on the land. So there's lots of ways in which we can incorporate our Indigenous knowledge and combine it with, you know, the provincial curriculum and the expectations that are needed in order to um, be able to be admitted into post-secondary, for example. So I think it opens up a lot of doors for us. So the agreements with the provincial and federal governments, that will come this year? Um, the next phase is we, we start working on developing our, our education law. Um, this is like an equivalent to an education act. It would apply to all of our on-reserve uh, schools and school systems, um, and we would work with the community to develop that and then eventually ratify that law. So there's going to be a lot of deep engagement, research, community engagement to understand what kind of courses or how we want to structure this as well as the governance. Do we want to completely copy sort of a Western model where we have school trustees that are elected by residents of an area, or do we want to look at alternative models as well? So there'll be a lot of thinking and creativity that'll have to go into it, and then eventually we'll ratify uh, our own education law, and then with that comes an agreement with the federal and provincial government to support financially the resources needed to in- implement that law. So uh, the the law itself, uh, and then the process of a curriculum, process of textbooks, the process of a f- actual building, 
uh, and the capital costs that come from that. This is still years away in regards to the your dream um, to move towards that dream of having an education system. But this is these are the early first steps. So eventually, you see, you see a physical structure, a school, actually, like we have in any other part of the province, and the teachers and, the, and all the processes that go with that. Yeah, we have a current school on our reserve that serves kindergarten to grade four, but we've also already started plans with a feasibility study, and we're now moving into a business case for expanding that school from uh, grade four all the way up to grade 12. And then we also have multiple communities and regions. So we have the North Shore region uh, where most of our people live, but we also have a number of families and community members that live in the Squamish Valley. And so we're going to start looking at uh, capital costs to build the school there. Of course, as you know, we're going to be building the Sanok development, which could have upwards of about 300 homes dedicated for Squamish families. So we'll need to think about how we're going to provide uh, education services to those families as well. So we'll start to expand over the years. And we're in the progress already of, of exploring what the cost might be for those types of structures. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, hold off on Synod for a second. I do want to talk to you about development. But one of the other issues uh, in your community, quite quite interesting, is to my understanding, there's, there is, you're in the process of or have set up a public safety committee. Of course, uh, law and order and public safety have been forefront in the news uh, in, in non-First Nations communities and First Nations communities. What are you planning to achieve with that committee? Public safety has been a huge issue in the Squamish Nation for many years, just like I think it is in many other communities, and the issues aren't that different. You know, we have issues of violence or threats of violence. We have issues of a feeling of public safety through, you know, different types of acts that come into our community, especially, I think, as homelessness has risen and, and the de- desperation, I think, has, has risen over the years, especially through the pandemic with people trying to survive. And so, We have a lot of non-Squamish people coming into the community as well that are causing a lot of uh, feelings of unsafety. And so Council of the Squamish Nation has directed the creation of a public safety task force. It's comprised of a number of individuals who come from various backgrounds, whether it's law enforcement um, or public health and community services. And our goal is to come up with a report with a number of action steps that we would take to build a a holistic approach to public safety and really start looking at what are the tools that we need to start developing so that we can enforce certain rules or expectations when it comes to on reserve. The the challenge that a lot of people don't know about is that on reserve, um, because we're under the jurisdiction of the federal Indian Act, there's not a lot of tools available to us to be able to enforce simple things like bylaws, for example. Our municipalities have bylaws, the province has their court system, the feds have its court system. We're really stuck, unable to enforce any of our own bylaws or our own rules and expectations. So, you know, I think it'll start to look at how do we reclaim jurisdiction in that area so that we actually have enforceable tools, um, but also work with other law enforcement agencies. A good example of that is there's a growing movement in Canada to have uh, First Nations policing forces declared as a essential service in, in federal law. Uh, there's a number of First Nations police forces across the country. There's only one in BC currently. There used to be more, but there's only one now. So we might look at, you know, actually building our own law enforcement agency as well. And what does it look like for a First Nation to actually control and have influence over its own law enforcement agency? And that might be a tool that we look at to help bring um, a Squamish way to enforcing rules, but also maintaining order and safety within a community. And and to confirm uh, with, with, from you, the, the issue of lawlessness or public safety, had, has that gotten worse during, uh, because, uh, during or after COVID, or is this an issue that's been building many years prior? 
there's a you know there's a number of issues that happen in our community um a lot of it stems from um you know i think a lot of unresolved trauma and trauma behavior and a lot of challenges there around mental health and things like that i think it's also a lot to do with the economic situation a lot of families face themselves in so you know there's things and issues in our community that you know it'll take a holistic approach to resolve but we've definitely seen a few very violent incidents happen in the community that were very tragic and very um, um, challenging, especially for the community. There's been a number of, of uh, shootings that have happened in, inside our community over the last 10 years, and some of those have come from various reasons um, and, and places. But it, I think, really, it's there's two things. There's you know our approach is really looking at there's safety in terms of the outcome, but there's also the feeling of safety, and the feeling of safety is just as much as an important as the outcome of safety. And we want to look at what are the ways in which the community will feel more safe and what are the ways we can actually bring more safety to the community and tools that are actually going to be effective at doing that. Let's talk a little bit about development and housing as well. I noticed recently uh, you had publicly stated that there's a 15-month moratorium on receiving unsolicited development proposals uh, for reserve land. Uh, Generally, uh, some would argue, does that slow down, perhaps hinder growth? My guess is that had that came from you because you probably have too much demand and too much coming at the, the Squamish First Nations in regards to development ideas. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, you know, so we're in an interesting environment. You know, we we own hundreds of acres of land on the North Shore and in Squamish. Uh, just as Squamish Nation alone, we also have lands that we partner with other First Nations on. But just in terms of Squamish Nation lands, our reserve lands, a lot of them are in prime uh, locations for potential real estate development. A number of them are going to be along rapid transit corridors as TransLink starts to make investments to and across Burrard Inlet in the next 10 years. And there's also, uh, you know, a, a huge housing crisis right now. So what happens is our land is collectively owned. You know, it's, it's if we think of ourselves as a government, uh, this is all government-owned land, and a lot of it is either unimproved or underutilized right now. And so there's an opportunity to generate some wealth or some housing um, and some community amenities uh, for our community. And so we receive sometimes a lot of unsolicited proposals from other developers, other uh, business interests who come forward and they sort of say, hey, we think we know what we could do with your land. And the challenge is you receive these proposals and they're all kind of different, Mm -hmm. but not really the same. And so you can't really do a, a comparison on sort of this or that. And then part of it too is we also don't know what the land actually um, can sustain. Uh, we don't know what the current site uh, schematics are, the limitations are, whether it's environmental or utilities and things like that. So what staff really came forward with is they wanted to ask council for a mandate to put a moratorium in. We won't receive or look at any proposals from outside parties for a, a number of a year or so. And while that happens, there'll be a concurrent process where our staff, uh, working with their economic development corporation, we'll actually start to look at developing uh, strategies, uh, strategic land use plans for a number of high priority areas so that we can actually step back, make a plan, identify what the opportunity is, and really look at highest and best use for those lands so that we can come back in a year with a clear vision of what could happen there. And then that way, if we want to bring in other development partners, we have a better sense of maybe what the value of the land could be, what uh, kind of density the land could have, what kind of built form we might want to build there, what are the other opportunities that arise, and we'll be able to come forward with a much clearer vision, which I think will allow us to actually speed up the speed of, of development in that sense. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Sinoc. Uh, that's the development project. I think it's 10 and a half acres in total. 
uh, which is located at, uh, at Kitts Point, adjacent to Vanier Park, just on the south side of the Broad Street Bridge. Um, a significant uh, development. I think it's the largest economic development for any First Nations in this province, never mind the country. Uh, give me a sense of where you are in that proposal because it will fundamentally reshape the skyline in many ways for, for Vancouver as well. Where are we in regards to that development? Yeah, we're, uh, we're well underway on construction of phase one. Um, and so a lot of the ground disturbance and movement of the earth has happened. Um, we're about to enter into construction on phase two out of four. Um, we'll be going to tender on most of the prime contracts soon for, uh, soon for that. And then while that's happening, we're also completing work on the design, final designs for phase three and four, and then eventually uh, working towards uh, construction on those. So a lot of infrastructure construction at this point, um, but not any cranes or anything like that yet. We have to build in all the sewage and hydro uh, utilities. Separate from that process, the city of Vancouver in the spring will also be launching their own engagement process with the wider community and the neighboring communities around all of the infrastructure changes that will be coming to the neighborhood. There's a number of proposed uh, infrastructure changes like um, road changes, bike lanes, uh, uh, bus and uh, transit connections. And all of those things happen on the adjacent lands that are within the city of Vancouver's jurisdiction. So they're going to engage in their own public uh, process to engage the community and share updates on those designs and solicit feedback through that process. Um, And then eventually there'll be some changes that come to help align with uh, what's happening um, um, in, in around the area. So well underway, but uh, more work to do, um, and it, it is getting exciting. We're seeing a lot of our, our people being able to work on the project, and uh, we're continuing to sort of refine some of the ground plane design and what the sort of amenities on the site are going to look like. How many buildings will we see in the first phase? Uh, first phase is three buildings, and then the next phase is another four, and then there's a two, and then a two. I think altogether is 12 buildings altogether, including one uh, office commercial space. The the first phase. Uh, when will we see it uh, com- uh, completed in the sense that the building's done and it's up and it's renting out? When would that be? Is that still about three or four years away then? I would say about uh, about two or so years away before we see the first occupancy. It depends on a few factors, but um, one of the challenges is, of course, all the construction costs and the inflation uh, impacts there. And so we're sort of, in some ways, waiting for some things to come down on price. Other times we're moving very quickly because we don't want the price to go up too much more. So there's a little bit of a, a strategy um, behind the scenes on that. So it depends on a lot of those factors, but we're hoping within the next couple of years. Were you surprised by the pushback? Uh, residents in Vancouver saying it's too big for the area, uh, that you do you haven't uh, got, uh, I guess, the term social license from the neighborhood. Um, all of those things, and to write down to, uh, you know, uh, is there enough parking? All, all those kind of amenities and things that people are expecting. Uh, were you ex- uh, were you surprised by the pushback? No, I think that one of the challenges that we have anytime we're doing you know development of new neighborhoods, new communities, especially in the Vancouver context, is that um, there's always the interests of the people that are sort of living there and around the area at the time of the development, but then there's also the reality of what happens once people move in. And we've seen this time and time again throughout a number of neighborhoods that once those future residents, you know, they're really, if we can think of them as future neighbors, uh, they move in, they start to tell the story of how grateful they are to have housing, um, how beautiful and wonderful that community is. And I think of places like the West End, that when it was first built, you know, faced similar types of criticisms, but today is regarded as one of Vancouver's best neighborhoods. There's a whole number of other places in Vancouver that are like that. 
So I think that it's understandable. There's definitely, you know, reasonable to have concerns and questions about how it might impact uh, their lives or their families' lives. But at the same time, there is just the fact that we do need to build a lot of housing in this uh, city. And there's kind of two ways to do it. One is we build towers and build up, or we densify across the board and allow for six, seven stories in more neighborhoods than just certain areas. But right now, um, I think most Vancouverites seem to prefer this sort of Vancouver model where we build towers next to single detached houses. But, so it's always about trade-offs. And I think that our development, once built, is really going to bring a lot of value to the neighborhood and to the community. Uh, and I think it'll be celebrated for what it's set out to, to, to achieve and what it ultimately achieves. Hal Salem, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Yeah, thank you.